Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Good morning. It's so good to be together with you. My name is Travis. For those of you who don't know me, and it's just a, I love worshiping God together. I want you guys to open up your Bibles to Genesis 1-3 if you can. Uh, if you want to just follow along, we're going to have all the scripture on the screens this morning uh, and, and some stuff highlighting things just to kind of help you see some of the patterns we're going to be talking about. So feel free to look at the screens or have the Bible in your lap and, uh, and on the screens and make some notes. Uh, just encourage you just to soak in all that God has to say to you this morning. Um, we're in this series called Patterns where we're discovering in the very first pages of scripture in the book of Genesis some patterns of words and pictures that the, the author of Genesis built into that book that then echo throughout the rest of scripture, but that also have high impact in our lives for how we live. So I love the idea of, of a prequel. How many of you guys love prequels? You know what I'm talking about when you either watch a movie or you've read a book and, and you get into this story, but then they go back in time. And they say, here's how it all started, or here's why things are the way they are. Or even in a movie like a flashback, you, you see some action, you see some things happening, but then they go back in time and they say, but here's, they kind of pop the hood and say, here's why things are the way they are. I, I love that. It always feels like, aha, I finally get why that character is the way they are, or why things in this world are the way they are. And today, it's kind of like that. Our scripture today is very much going back to that prequel, connecting the dots that link current realities with past events. This Sunday, we get to ask the question, how did things get like this? Now, that's not always an encouraging story, is it? Because we look around at the earth and we say, how did things get like this? But that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at the prequel. I don't even have to look past myself to see the brokenness that I am so concerned about in the world. Do you ever just like make a decision, you do something, and then like the next day or later on that day or a week later, you just look at yourself in the mirror and you think, why do you do the things you do? <laughs> Anyone, am I alone here? Ah. Oh. The number of times I've made a decision and then I just look at myself and I think, why are you the way you are, Travis? The Bible is very clear on why I am the way that I am and why you are the way that you are. There's a design pattern in Genesis that answers this question both on a global scale and on a personal scale and everything in between. See, our pattern today, though, starts with a good pattern, the ideal pattern, the way things were always supposed to be. But then the pattern takes this twist. The pattern is still recognizable, but with some very significant and devastating changes, enough to make our world the broken place that it is today. This twisted pattern begins when sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. And so this is not necessarily a happy prequel 
But because of who God is, it can become a hopeful prequel. So let's jump in and see the ideal pattern and how it's supposed to be. This, what we're about to read, is how things were always supposed to be. Genesis 1, verse 3. Look at what it says. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now look at this. And God saw that the light was good. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then we'll read in the creation narrative six times, six times that God makes something, and then it says, and God saw that what he made was what? Good. So we're getting used to this idea that God makes something and it's his eyes, his judgment that sees it and has the right to say, and this is good. Six times it says that. And then there's a little twist, a really great twist. The phrase God saw that it's good said six times, but then there's this, this next part that kind of amps it up a few notches. Genesis 1, 29 through 31. Read with me. And God said, behold, I have what? Given. Given. Keep that in mind. Not taken, given. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them. Who shall have them? Humans. Have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, what? I have given. He says it again. I have given. It's not about being taken, it's about being given. Every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that, was ma- that he made, and behold, it was what? Very good. So now it amps it up a little bit. He's saying, all this that I've made, he says to man, I'm giving it to you. You don't have to take it from me. You don't have to sneak around. I'm giving it freely to you. And then he says what? This is v- very good. God seeing what is good, judging what is good, and then giving it to who? Us, mankind, humans. So the original pattern is this. God is giving to his creatures, and this is very good. So the original pattern is God sees what is good and then gives to humans. This is the ideal relationship between God and humans, the way it was supposed to be from the start, the way God intended it to be on into eternity, that God is the one who sees what is good for humans and he gives it to them. This is the ideal pattern. This is what God always wanted, that he would make things and judge which of these things are for my children. And then once God sees that it's good, what does he do? He takes it and withholds it, what does he do? He gives it freely. This is the way it was always supposed to be. Now let's see this idea develop. Not only is God the perfect judge of what is good for humans, but also what is not good for humans. 2, 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man and put him, literally planted him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, good and bad, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So God's now entering in the idea that there are things that are good for man, but there are also things that are what? Bad for man. And those things that are bad for man, I'm going to keep from you. And then the Lord God said, it is what? Not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So up to this point, God alone is seen as the only qualified judge of what is good. He's the only one in the story who's looking at things and able to say good, bad. And now at this point, well, he's been saying good up to this point. And then up to this point, he says now this is bad. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And it would not be good for him to eat of the tree. And for them, once I make his wife, to eat of the tree that I've told them not to. This is bad. In this passage, let me ask you a question. Who is the one judging what is not good, man or God? It's not Adam coming to God and saying, hey, I've, I've discerned that this thing isn't good for me. It's God looking at Adam and saying, not only do I know it's good for you, I know it's not good for you. God is that judge. And then in the following passage, what do we see God do? He corrects what is not good, Adam being alone, by giving Adam a wife. He takes away what is not good by what? Giving to Adam. So here's what this first pattern teaches us about God and his nature. The first thing, God is the judge of what is good and what is bad. Let me add this, God alone is the judge of what is good and what is bad. Oh, how we need to hear this here in 2020. I got an amen from a baby. You know it's right. <laughs> How we need to hear this message that God alone is the judge of what is good and what is bad here as we sit today. The second thing this teaches us about God's nature, God gives humans what is good and removes what is bad. This is his nature he wants to give us only that which is good for us, truly good for us, and that which is harmful, bad, unhelpful, evil, he wants to remove from us. And the third thing, the way it was always supposed to be is this, that humans trust God's judgment of good and receive it from him as a gift. Not take what we think is ours, but we trust his judgment of good and bad. And then as he gives it, we receive it as he gives in his timing. This is the way it was always supposed to be. But then Moses, the author of Genesis, answers the prequel question that all of the readers of his day would be asking because they'd be saying, you say all this world started off really good and all this blessing and good gifts being given by God. But they're looking around. By the, by the time they read this, things were already pretty messed up very messed up, and they're looking and saying, how did it get like this then? How did it go from God starting the world and everything is good and he gives good and takes away bad? How did we get to the place we are? And we're still asking that question today, aren't we? How did it become like this? How did it, everything get so broken and evil? And so Moses brilliantly introduces the twist to the pattern. This is where things get corrupted. This is where the pattern is still recognizable, but it's corrupted. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, read this carefully. Notice, see if you notice something. 
He, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? You can't eat from anything in the garden. Sit there and starve. Is that what God said to Adam and Eve? No. This is the first words out of Satan's mouth, and what is it? A lie. Take note. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, now she has you know, her whereabouts. She, she says, I'm gonna correct him. I'm gonna correct him, that's not true. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Watch this. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God tell them you can't touch it? No, he didn't. She's now adding words to what God has said. She's taking the bait. Satan has said, tempted her with, you know, God's, God's withholding from you. There's stuff that you could have that if you had it, it would be much better. God's withholding from you. And she's like, oh, well, he didn't say we couldn't eat anything, but he said we couldn't touch it either. She's adding to the narrative. He never said that. She's taking the bait, and you can see this going downhill really fast. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, directly contradicting God. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw, who's been seeing up to this point? Who's been the one seeing and judging up to this point? Who? God. Look at the twist. So now the woman saw that the tree was, I wish they had quotes on this, quote, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She what? Took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Who's been the one giving up to this point? God. God's been the one giving up to this point. He's been the one giving food to mankind up to this point. But now Eve has stepped in the place of God and said, I'm going to see what is good for me. And oh, by the way, Adam, I'm going to give to you what I think is good. Eve has stepped in the place of God and is trying to be a God. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So let's compare the patterns. The original ideal pattern was this. God saw what is good and gave. God saw, judged what is good. And then what does he do with that which is good? He gives it to humankind. But the corrupted, twisted pattern is this. Now humans saw what was, quote, good. And they what? Took. Do you see it? Do you see the pattern? How it started off so amazing. And then humans with arrogance and pride stepped in and said, you know, I could be my own God. I could be the judge of what is good and what is bad. And then if God doesn't give what I've judged as good and bad, what am I gonna do? Take it. And that's what we've been doing ever since. This twisted pattern is repeated 
by this author in Genesis several times and other authors from other books to show how rooted this pattern of sin has become in broken humans. We see it, one of the places we see it is when God promises Abram and Sarai a child, but he hasn't delivered it to them in their expected timeline. He said, I'm gonna give you a child, but it hasn't happened yet, not on their timeline. And instead of waiting and receiving, they attempt to take it by force through abusing their servant, Hagar. Genesis 16, one through six. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne to him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. He's withholding from me. Does that remind you of something we just read? Eve, he's holding back. Go into my servant, It may be that I shall obtain children by her, have kids with Hagar, and will take them. Great idea. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, just like Adam listened to the voice of Eve. You see these repeated patterns echoing? So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, what? Took. There it is. Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, just like Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she, Hagar now, is drawn into this sin, when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So now it's not just two people's sin. Now they've added a third person in here who's now looking at Sarah and saying, I'm better than you. I had kids. You didn't. Hagar saw. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Abraham, this is your fault. Abram's like, it was your idea. So now they're fighting. Now they're blaming. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me, Abram. You're sleeping on the couch tonight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, hey, I don't want to make you mad. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please, which literally in the Hebrew is do to her what is good in your eyes. The word tov in Hebrew, what is good, tov. You do what is tov in whose eyes? Your eyes, Sarah. There you have it. We have the saw, we have the good, and we have the took. So then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her. It doesn't stop there. There's other parts in Genesis where this same saw good took gets repeated over and over again. But there's another book, Joshua, chapter 7, verse 20 through 21. Now in this this part, you see God had given the land of Israel to Israel and said, go occupy it. And there's some people that you need to remove because they're doing horrible things. Get them out of there. When you conquer their cities, like the city of Jericho that they're going to conquer, don't take anything from it. Don't take plunder. Destroy it all. Don't anyone take anything. He was very clear. They go into Jericho. They completely destroy Jericho. The people are ousted out of that. And one guy, one guy 
had a better plan than God. His name was Achan. He saw some stuff he liked and he took it. And so the next battle they have, guess what happens to Israel? They lose horribly. And they try to figure out whose fault this is and they narrow it down with God's provision to this guy named Achan. And they say, what did you do? And Achan, verse 20, answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. See if you can see it, probably can because it's, color-coded, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful, but literally tove, good, a beautiful, a good cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted, I desired, just like Eve desired the fruit, them, and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Lots of Israelite soldiers died because of that. They lost a major battle because of that. Because he saw something that he thought was good for him. And he, what? Took it. And again, another story you might be very familiar with. Even if you haven't read the Bible, if you've listened to the the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, there's a verse about this. David and Bathsheba. David's the king of Israel. He's what's called a man after God's own heart. He's the person through whom the promised Messiah is gonna come through, and look what he does. Verse four, sorry, verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David did what? Did he go out to battle? He sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So this is the time when kings are supposed to be out with their armies at battle. And what is David doing? He's at home. It happened, now here the the author is just gonna like lather on the the complete um, laziness of David at this point. It happened late one afternoon, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So it's like three o'clock in the afternoon and he's just getting out of bed. David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he, what, saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, but again here, this is that word tov, good. She was very good in his eyes. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Look at the answer he gets, and then look at what he does. When he inquires about the woman, one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Not your wife, his wife. And after they said that to David, David sent his messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And we'll see if you read, keep reading that this decision leads David to then commit murder And absolute havoc in David's family reigns from that point on to the end of his life and in Israel because of this decision. David saw that in his eyes, another man's wife was good for him. And so what did he do? Because God hadn't offered her to him. What did he do? Took her. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the words repeated over and over? And do you see the cyclical pattern of sin in these people's lives? It's just a devolving spiral, isn't it? 
And so from Adam and Eve all the way down to you and I, meeting together in this room at this very minute, the echo of this sin pattern still reverberates. You probably in the last 24 hours, maybe less, have done this same exact pattern. I know I have. But the problem is that untold horror and brokenness and destruction has overtaken our world, all because of a pattern that we've had on repeat since the garden. And no matter how many times we see this pattern in other people's lives and we think, oh, they really messed that up, what do we do the very next moment? The same exact pattern. The pattern is called sin. So how do we describe this broken pattern of sin? If we were to kind of pop the hood and do some reverse engineering on what actually is sin, what's happening in me, what's happening in the world when we choose the sin pattern? Here it is. The broken pattern of sin is this. It all starts with, just like Eve, when I say, I am the judge of what is good and what is bad. That's where it all starts. When you see yourself as the arbiter, as the judge of what is truly good and what is truly bad. When that's what's happening in your heart, when you either know something that God's word says, this is not for you, this is not good, but in your mind you think, but this is an exception. It'll work out for me this time because, and then you give all the lists of justifications. Anyone in here done that? Oh, come on. You, raise, your, raise your hands. Anyone in here done that? Okay. And if the person next to you didn't raise their hand, raise it for them. <laughs> this is the story of our lives. I'm the judge of what is good and what is bad for me. This is my truth. That's your truth, but this is my truth. The second thing that happens in this broken pattern of sin is this. After having decided that I'm the judge of what is good and bad, how do I decide what is good and bad? What do I use? What part of me do I use to figure out what is good and bad? It's this. My desires are what determine what is good and what is bad. So I think I'm the one who gets to say what is good and what is bad. And then when I'm trying to figure out what is good and what is bad, what do I use? What I want. I look at what I want. What do I want right now in this moment? And that is what is good for me. That's what's good for me. My desires get enticed. I get pulled away from truth. And I, and I get convinced that I and what I want in this moment, that is what judges what is good. And so you're led by your desires, which will say ABC one moment and then say XYZ the next. Now, are all your desires bad? No. We do have some genuinely good desires as humans. But let me ask you a question. Are enough of your desires good? Are enough of your desires good that you should actually trust them to decide what is good and what is bad? Me, for one, not even close. But the third thing, then, that happens in this pattern of sin is when God doesn't give me what I have to Judged is good by my desires. When God doesn't give it to me, what do I do? I take it. I do it anyway. 
This is the pattern that every one of us lives probably every day of our lives in some way, shape, or form. If, if you ever look at any sin you have, any regret you have, I guarantee you that this pattern is somewhere in there. I want to tell you a story, a personal story, about how I've seen this played out in the life of another that then affected me. My dad, um, good guy. I loved being around him. He's, he's gone now. He died several years back. Um, but he was a good guy, a fun guy. He was affectionate. Uh, when he was with me and my sister, he said, I love you. Um, but he found something in high school that, that made him happy, and it was alcohol. And see, he and his friends would, would party, and they'd get drunk, and, um, you know, something that you call a mistake and some bad decisions in high school, if you keep it and never grow out of it, becomes a devastating uh, horror in your later life. And so he became an alcoholic. And he, uh, like so many people, struggled with that over and over and over again. And no matter how much my mom begged him to stop and begged him to get help and begged him to choose our family over the alcohol, he just couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. And it eventually led to uh, their divorce. And my parents split up. We stayed with my mom. And um, it was so sad as I look back at it in my dad's life. So sad that he, what, saw that alcohol was good for him. And so he took alcohol as his answer for happiness. And it left me and my sister without a dad in the home. But this pattern didn't end with that pattern. It gave birth to another sinful pattern. Um, we had, when, once they were divorced, my mom and dad were divorced, we had visits every Thursday. He was supposed to come and pick us up and um, spend a few hours with us and just, you know, enjoy each other's time so that we could still have that relationship in our lives. And at first, he, uh, he, he showed up almost all the time, and uh, he would call if he wasn't going to be there. Um, but as the years went by and as he felt the shame of the decisions he had made and the distance between him and his relationship with my sister and I, uh, shame set in. And it hurt his pride. And so when he was with us, he always felt ashamed, I think because he wasn't the dad he had wanted to be. And so he saw that avoiding shame and protecting pride was good, and so he took off. See, it got to a point where my sister and I would be waiting at the window to see his car pull up on Thursday afternoon, um, and sometimes he would and sometimes he wouldn't. It wasn't because he didn't want to be with us. It's because his shame drove him to protect his pride. And so he saw that it was better to avoid, that it was good to avoid, and so he took off. Now, I'm not looking at my dad and judging him, saying this is the sad state we all find ourselves in. The sad thing about that sin pattern, though, was that it echoes into the lives of others, doesn't it? Because it created, it, it created a wound in me that then I dealt with with my own sin pattern and it wasn't alcohol and it wasn't abandonment. 
it was people pleasing. Because I felt my whole life that I was very easily leavable, abandonable. I'm sure there's lots of people sitting in this room right now that know exactly what I'm talking about. That in your mind, it, why would anyone stick around with me? And so you end up doing things and making decisions to please the people around you just to keep them with you. And some of those things were just unwise decisions. Some of those decisions I made to keep people with me were sinful decisions. Imagine a guy who has a sin pattern of um, wanting to please people becoming the worship pastor of a church of over a thousand people, because you all have the exact same music preferences, don't you? <laughs> I remember when I first took this job on, man, one week people would be saying, hey, do more hymns, man, the music's too loud, so the next week, hey, let's, let's do more hymns, music's loud. Next week, hey, you're doing too many hymns, and turn up the music, would you? Okay, less hymns, too. Back and forth, back and forth, and I realized, man, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to this pattern. Now that was an unwise thing, but look at the number of times in my life that I've done something to please someone that did not please God. Our sin patterns wound others and then our sin patterns echo into their lives. They don't always look the same, but sometimes it's a sin pattern, it's a reaction to a sin pattern. Sin is viral. Sin is viral. unless the pattern is broken. Every sin pattern opens a Pandora's box of other sin patterns for myself and even for others. Their sin isn't my sin, but their wound is. But we are not helpless in the struggle against sin. I'm gonna say this next part, and you're gonna say amen. Because we have to get this. Sin patterns are viral, but they are not invincible. Sin patterns are viral, but they are not invincible. Because Jesus. Because Jesus broke the pattern. And he broke sin. Do you remember the story of Jesus' temptation. He's just been baptized in the Jordan River and God sends him out into the desert to be tempted. And he's out there and the devil comes to him and tempts him and says, look, you're hungry, turn that stone into bread. You've got the power, use it to do something that God hasn't told you to do. Does Jesus take the bait? What does he do? He says, no. He says, because God's word says this. The devil says, okay, fine, I'll take you to a high mountain. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. If you bow down to me, you can have these. And Jesus in his mind says, oh, I'll have these kingdoms. But not yet. God hasn't handed them over to me yet because my job here is not done. And so Jesus, does he take the bait? No, he breaks the pattern and says, no, no. Not until the proper time. He broke the pattern during his temptation. What about during uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane scene? 
where Jesus is going to be executed. He's going to be crucified, a horrific death. And he's praying and he says, God, please take this from me. I don't want to go through this. And God's very obvious answer is what? No, you have to go through this. Does Jesus take the easy way out? No. He sees that what God has put before him, though painful and horrific, is good. And he gives his life for you and me. Jesus broke the pattern. Jesus saw that God, his father, was the author of what is good, and he only received from his father that which his father gave. He didn't take when it wasn't his. Jesus broke the pattern, and we, sinful and broken as we are, have been given access to that same power to overcome because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have the same power in us through the Holy Spirit to break the pattern. Perfectly like Jesus did? No, but the same Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 18 through 21 says this, having the eyes of your heart, I want you to see rightly, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. That power that God raised Jesus from the dead with is living in us, is living in me, is living in you if you have trusted Jesus. And that power to break the pattern of sin looks like this. The first part of breaking, of walking in the power that Jesus has given us to break sin is this. To one, entrust judgment of good and bad to God. We have got to get this right. Our culture is screaming at us the opposite. Our culture has sold you and me a lie that you are the judge of what is good for you. That you define what is good and what is evil for you as your truth. Have you heard that lately? This is my truth, that's your truth. I get it. People are doing everything they can to not fight with each other. And so I believe this, you believe that, let's get along. I get the sentiment. I agree with let's get along. I agree with let's be kind to each other and be civil with each other. But I can't agree with the first part, that that's your truth and that's my truth. There's one truth. And we don't get to decide it. No matter how much it makes sense to our culture, that truth is relative to what you think and what you want and what you desire. It is not true. You've been led to believe that personal and political and sexual and social ethics are a product of your opinions and desires, my opinions and my desires. They are not. What is right for a person's life personally is what God says is good and what is bad. What God says is good and what is bad politically, that is the judgment. That is, that is what we judge by, sexually. 
We don't get to decide what is right and what is wrong sexually. Sexual identity, gender identity, those aren't our judgment. They belong squarely in the hands of God. Good and evil, right and wrong, sinful and holy, these things aren't up for election. The definition of good and evil don't exist as members of a democracy where the people vote and say which is which. Good and evil exist in a kingdom that has a king, and that king's name is Jesus. And he alone is worthy to judge what is good and what is evil. And I know we've been told our whole life that we are the master of our own destiny and just to to follow your heart and do what you see is right. But the one who is whispering that in your ear is the same serpent who whispered it in Eve's. If you take the bait, if you see what you think is good and take it, you join the endless chorus of those who have done the same thing for thousands of years leading to the world we find ourselves in today. Let me ask you a question. Do you see the world around you today? Do you see the world around you today? Do you see that everyone is defining their own version of right and wrong? Last question, how is that working for us? I'm not meaning to be passive aggressive, I really mean that. How is that pattern working for us? I don't see it working at all. So if you want a different outcome, you must follow a different pattern. What pattern? The pattern where God is king and we receive from him what he defines as good. This is called humility. That I come to God poor and empty-handed and let him be king. Let him define what is good and what is bad. How, How do you know God's definition of what is good and bad? Point two on this. We engage your desires with the word of God. Engage your desires with the word of God. You are broken and so are your desires. Not always, but enough to make you lock the doors when you see them coming. You can't always trust your desires. In fact, I would say you rarely can trust your desires 100%. There has to be a better place to look for the definition of good. This is why God wrote a book. The Bible has rules, but it is not a book that is a list of rules. It is the story of a being who is the definition of good, God himself. And when we see him in his greatness, we'll want him even more. Church, we want the things that our eyes consume. So what are you feeding your eyes? Everything the world offers you is greater and better? Or through the pages of scripture, are you seeing Jesus as good and better? You cannot pursue the goodness of God while ignoring his word. Three, how do we fight sin? How do we take Jesus up on the power that there is to fight sin? Three, enjoy God by receiving what he gives, not by taking what you want. 
God wants to give you good things, but so often we reject them because we only have an appetite for things that we must sinfully take. We'll never beat sinful desire with discipline for the long term. Discipline is good because in the moment you can say, I'm not gonna do this and I'm gonna discipline myself not to do this. But discipline, though necessary, doesn't work for the long haul. You beat desire with greater desire. If I want something that is evil and it feels good to me right now, how do I beat that desire? By discipline for the long haul? No, by a greater desire that trumps this desire. By a greater desire that beats this one. That is a deeper, better, more fulfilling desire. You beat desire with desire. At some point in this sinful pattern, we have to make a choice. We have to choose not to indulge. We have to choose not to be the judge. We have to choose not to do the sin. That your desire for Jesus would be greater and more pleasing to you than the empty promises that sinful desires deliver. And the last thing I want to say to you of how we take this fight to sin is we enlist the help of others. Sometimes the difference between staying in your sin and breaking free is another person knowing. Knowing that you're struggling, knowing what you're up against, knowing the things that are pulling on your heart and on your mind. Church, evil things grow in the dark and they die in the light. We have some questions for your groups if you're in a home group. And if you're not, this point is especially, especially poignant for you. You can't fight this fight alone. You need to be with people who are going to help you fight it. So we're going to put these up on screen. And if you want to just take a picture of that, that's fine. I'm going to move on and we're going to move into communion. But do get those questions down. Be either with your family this week discussing or with your home group. But we get to celebrate communion this morning. Communion is where we get to look back and see exactly what Jesus did that broke sin and broke the pattern of sin for good. He died on a cross to pay for our sin. He died on a cross to free us from our sin so that we could walk in freedom. And so once a month, we as a church stop and we take a piece of bread that's a physical reminder that Jesus' body was broken on the cross. And we eat that, we take that into our bodies as a reminder that the same power that Jesus demonstrated on the cross and in the resurrection is given to us. And we drink a cup of juice that is the symbol of his blood that was spilled out on the cross that is the pleasing sacrifice so that we can be righteous and holy before God. He did all the work. He did all the work. Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher to follow in the footsteps of. Jesus didn't just set a good example how to break the pattern of sin. Jesus broke sin on the cross. And so we remember him now. Those of you who are gonna be serving communion, if you wanna go get get that, that would be great. And if you wanna come on forward, I'm gonna pray and they're gonna serve the bread and just hold on to that bread as as the band plays. And just have a conversation with God about whatever he puts on your mind. But above all things, remember to thank him for the sacrifice. Remember him in this moment. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and thank you for the sacrifice you did on the cross. It is only through your blood on the cross that we can be saved. It is only through your blood and resurrection that we have the power to live a life that follows you and breaks this pattern of brokenness that we've been living in our whole lives. We will never be perfect here on this earth. 
But Jesus, we want you to change us as we remember you now through communion. We remember that it is you that paid the price for our sins, not us. It is you that is good enough to the Father, not us. It is you that is the perfect sacrifice to God, not us. We remember you, and we in deep gratitude thank you. In Jesus' name.